Welcome to Tech Talk. Bye. CDT. Welcome to CDT's Tech Talk, where we dish on tech and internet policy while also explaining what these policies mean to our daily lives. I'm Brian Wozolowski, and it is time to talk tech. What is fake news? Is it something that is fiction being presented as fact? An opinion posted as a news story? Or is it simply any news story that you don't like? It seems that the last one is really what many mean, especially when an article or outlet is being shouted down on Twitter or called out on Facebook. Unquestionably, there certainly is non-factual news out there, and social media can help in advancing false stories. And yet, when authorities attempt to address the sort of so-called fake news, they often suggest policies that can harm free speech. And it's also far too common for an authoritarian regime to give journalists the fake news label, to discredit them and clamp down on free speech. Today's guest works at the Committee to Protect Journalists, or CPJ, and has been closely following the issues around fake news. Courtney Raj is the Advocacy Director at CPJ and the author of Cyber Activism and Citizen Journalism in Egypt, Digital Dissidents and Political Change. That is a very long name, Courtney, but I like it. Welcome to Tech Talk. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. So first, uh, I'm going to start with your book. Tell me about it. So my book is based on my dissertation. It's uh, an academic book, so warning there, but it is based on field work in Egypt with the youth movement as it was developing in the mid-2000s, so before the revolution, before the 2011 uprisings. And it's basically looking at how um, young activists were using social media and the internet and offline at you know, activism and organizing um, to create a movement that eventually brought about, uh, you know, this revolutionary change. But it is very much not supporting the idea of a Facebook revolution. It's really looking at how, you know, citizen journalism is part and parcel of the broader ecosystem of journalism in the world, um, how cyber activism actually has a significant offline component, the role of trust, the role of certification and um, yeah, please Very take a look. cool. Yeah, even academic books can be interesting, right? You know, just kind of put on your old school lens and <laughs> dig in. I wrote it as I wrote it to be a book, so I'm hoping my journalistic credentials come out <laughs> in the writing. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, obviously, you're doing great work these days at CPJ. Um, even Samantha B took notice, and during her uh, not the White House Correspondence Center, you're the N- NGO that's going to receive the proceeds. So that's awesome. How did that come about? <laughs> Well, we got a press release that said Samantha Bee is going to hold a Not the White House Correspondence Dinner and was going to donate the proceeds to CPJ whether we liked it or not. Oh, you just found so, out. <laughs> so apparently, um, you know, she was inspired by the work that we're doing. Uh, you know, we protect local journalists around the world. And we also depend on the role of the United States as a norms leader, as a, you know, upholding press freedom values around the world. So it's really important that we support the United States and adhering to those values. That's great. So she says in her, heard the same release then, the one that apparently you got, um, the reason that she's holding the Not the White House Correspondence Dinner is so that people learn how screwed we'd be without free press. Um, So expand a little bit. You just highlighted some of it on what CPJ really does to make sure that we're not screwed. Yeah. So, I mean, most of what we know, we know because of journalism, right? We know because some journalist or media organization is out there reporting on police abuse. I mean, that's one of the things, for example, in 
my book that I wrote about the power of citizen journalism in you know relatively unfree place like Egypt was the citizen journalists started covering the issues of torture, covering the instances of abuse, of police abuse, and they actually managed to get that on the agenda. And we see that around the world, you know, whether it's illegal logging in Cambodia or corruption in Mexico or frankly corruption anywhere, you know, yeah. it's usually the journalists who are digging into that and and revealing those stories. I mean, you know, the Washington Post, Post reporter just got a Pulitzer Prize for digging into the financials um, of, of, you know, now President Trump. And we see around the world that journalists are putting their lives and livelihood on the line to investigate these topics. And without that, you know, we wouldn't know uh, what our politicians are up to. We wouldn't know what private companies are doing um, with public lands. We wouldn't know what tech companies are doing, um, you know, with their algorithms. So really our all of our facets of life are improved when there is press freedom. Um, health, health issues are so important in many places of the world. Um, the way that people get their information is from journalists. And so when we don't have a free press, you can see that there are you know, fewer economic developments there. There are fewer opportunities. Um, and it has a negative impact on government accountability, on transparency, and a wide range of issues. Yeah, I just saw the read the story, I think, just today that the reporter who broke the news of um, in Chechnya of the LGBT community being, you know, basically imprisoned, some killed. Uh, she's now, you know, under lockdown because she's had threats against her life. So your point about the safety of journalists and breaking these really important stories is, is a really it was one that resonates. It's a great one. Um, so now let's pivot to fake news, which also has a lot of major implications. I mean, it's one of those terms that people are just throwing out there, as I said in the intro, in so many ways. How would you break down the issue of the so-called fake news? Sure. So I think you summed it up pretty well in the intro, which is <laughs> fake news has become an all-encompassing term that whoever is using the term uses in the way that they want to. So, you know, I think we can look at fake news as encompassing a range of types of, of information. So there's misinformation, disinformation, um, false news with the intent to mislead, counterfeit news, um, probably a more accurate thing than fake news, but also things now increasingly using the term to refer to news that somebody doesn't like and calling it fake news. Um, but you know, one thing that we're worried about with this term is some of some great journalism has been done under the auspices of satire or fake news, right? I mean, think Samantha about- Samantha B. <laughs> Samantha B, The Daily Show, Bassem Youssef in Egypt, you know, the, the Onion, which is very clearly satirical, but is making commentary on public issues of importance. So, you know, it's really challenging when we talk about the term fake news because it's very imprecise. And so what happens is it becomes a catch-all term and it becomes something that we're even seeing getting brought into policy making, which becomes very dangerous with any term that is vaguely defined, whether it's terrorism, fake news, um, you know, even propaganda can be very difficult to legislate around or, or regulate around because it's not precise and it leads to overarching and overreaching um, impact. Sure. So let's unpack some of this a little bit more. Um, let's first start with, you know, when journalists are labeled as fake news to silence or arrest them. What are some of the examples you've seen in your work that are concerning? 
Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, why we're so concerned with this issue at the Committee to Protect Journalists is because it kind of, before it got this kind of makeover, um, as you might call it, with the latest elections in the U.S. and the Brexit vote and the European elections that are coming up, what we have seen is that authoritarian countries have criminalized the publication of what they commonly call false news. And there are, um, based on kind of, I looked at Freedom House's um, country reports, and it looks like there are at least uh, 20 countries that have some sort of false news statutes on the board, on the books. Um, And so what, what does this mean? This means these false news statutes are used to censor, shut down, um, and jail journalists on these charges. And Usually this is done against critical outlets or outlets that are investigating corruption or malfeasance. Um, And it not only impacts on those individual journalists and media outlets, but it has ripple effects in terms of encouraging self-censorship, in terms of, um, you know, the having an impact on the public's right to receive and impart information. And so, you know, let's get into some specifics. So we have, according to our last census, we do a census of all the journalists in jail um, on a specific day on December 1st. It's very, actually very difficult to track. It's not like Iran is exactly forthcoming with, you know, how many journalists it's jailed and why. So we do this census. According to our census last year, um, there were 259 journalists in jail worldwide, which was the highest number ever. At least nine of those were imprisoned specifically on false news charges. Wow. So that's in Egypt and Ethiopia. So in Egypt, um, it's actually one of the most dangerous places to be accused of false news um, because they will arrest journalists. Um, They even arrested foreign journalists, including those working for Reuters and Al Jazeera. they were sentenced to three prisons, three years in prison on charges of false three news. Three years, wow. Three years, imagine. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And and you see, for example, in the Sinai, which is actually closed, largely closed off to the media in Egypt, and yet you have major military operations go, going on there. You have terrorist activity happening there. So it's very important that we that you know the world knows what's happening there. And yet there's a journalist, um, Ahmed Abu Dera, who was actually accused, arrested, and accused of publishing false news for something he wrote on his personal Facebook page about what was happening there. Um, you had Bassem Youssef, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. who used to have a very popular TV show kind of known as the John Stewart of Egypt. Um, and he ended up basically having to flee Egypt in order to avoid wow. um, arrest or worse. So, you know, what, so what does Egypt mean by false news? Well, what it means is if you publish anything related to terrorism and the government response to it, that is not the official line. Right. So you're only. Yeah. (laughs) Seems pretty limiting there. huh? (laughs) Yeah. So if the official Ministry of Defense statement says one thing and journalists on the ground have seen something else and report on that, that opens them up to charges of false news. And as I mentioned with the Facebook thing, we're seeing that this extends into the online fora, Um, you know, and it can have deadly consequences. In Mexico, there was a journalist um, who worked for a very important, you know, investigative um, uh, investigative news organization um, named Marcos Hernandez Bautista. And he was known for his reporting. There was a fake news story posted on Facebook that seemed to be kind of something that he might have written. It didn't have a byline, but it looked like that and accused some politicians of corruption. So 
three days later, he was murdered. Oh, wow. We don't know. I mean, that's of course, awful. we don't know for yeah. sure that that was linked, but that's, you know, that's very, very dangerous. Wow. Wow. So, wow. I mean, these are just the type of things that, like, you know, silence me here. Um, I'm going to pivot to a little out of order from the things that I told you I was going to ask you about. But, um, you know, some of these, Mexico certainly is a, is a democracy, a functioning democracy, but a lot of the other examples you had are more authoritarian regimes. Um, but at the same time, democratic countries are certainly trying to address the, the broad issues around fake news, and we'll get to a couple more of them. Why are these, um, you know, the ways that, like, I know Germany is trying to do something, um, certainly we've had talks in the U.S. of what, what either, you know, governments or companies should do. Why are they problematic for free speech? Why are they concerning to you? So some of the reasons that um, government approaches to regulating free speech are problematic is because um, in general, we like the idea of self-regulation, right? That this isn't, it's very hard for governments to tailor regulation or legislation for speech that doesn't end up infringing on freedom of expression and, and press freedom. And so, for example, with the German law that you mentioned, it's a draft law um, that was that's before that was approved by the cabinet in April. And it's it's ostensibly aimed at combating disinformation and hate speech. But what it would do is to essentially require that social media firms remove content that is flagged as fake news or they can risk fines that are as high as 50 million uh, euros so that's a huge fine but you can see the incentives here you, you know to remove content exactly and yeah. and but what do, what happens that means maybe the private companies feel that they need to remove more content than they really should um, we know that there have been campaigns designed um, to for example flag content as violating terms of service in order to get those sure. content or those accounts removed that's happened for years um, and oftentimes journalists are the brunt of that because they're using social media to, you know, report on these issues that are um, at odds with what either non-state actors or governments would like. And so what happens is, you know, if you read the law, there's a lot, it's very open to interpretation, but it also privatizes censorship. So not that we like any form of censorship, but at least when it's government censorship, you have rule of law, you have due process, you have some level of transparency in democratic countries, and then therefore you can see what's happening, advocate against it, et cetera. What happens with the privatization of censorship is essentially telling um, these private companies, you need to decide outside of any sort of judicial process or you know input that this is an illegal piece of content. And the thing is, you know, the, the, the categories of content are, there are like 25 different categories of content that are covered by this law. So it could result in massive censorship. Um, and the problem with outsourcing this to private companies is that it then becomes incumbent upon them to make these decisions without necessarily having any level of transparency, accountability, or any sort of access to remedy for those who have their content or accounts removed. Yeah, and it just, it's logical that not inherently do these companies need to have the public good, shall we say, at, with their motives. And some of these laws seem to disincentivize that, in fact. You know, the what they want to do is reduce risk, as I think most companies, when they look at their business model, are trying to do. So right. you're seeing a, just an incentive system that is not towards promoting more speech online. Um, let me get to uh, a point that I kind of jumped over 
before, and I apologize for that one. Uh, fake news being used to attack or delegitimize journalists and confuse the public. Talk about this a little bit more, because I, I, you know, you mentioned it to me when we were talking before. This is definitely one that's a little bit underreported in the fake news side of things. Yeah. So, you know, as we talk about fake news, we're usually thinking about, say, um, authorities and, and officials labeling news they don't like as fake news. But we've also seen around the world and documented um, at the Committee to Protect Journalists how government officials have created fake news in order to try to delegitimize those journalists or those media outlets or muddy the water. So there was this very infamous case um, about fake news that was spread by Russian national television at the height of the war in eastern Ukraine. Mm. And that not only fomented hostility and hatred and, and helped rally support for Russia, but what happened is it prompted real journalists to go investigate in Slovenisk, which is in eastern Ukraine. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. Good attempt, though. <laughs> <laughs> but it prompted those journalists to go investigate this crazy story and find out if there was any truth behind it. And that put them in risk. Oh, wow. Risk. And just the resources that you, you commit right. you know, to do something like that is a huge cost. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, go going back to Mexico, there was this case where a state government actually cloned online the covers of these Cancun based newspaper, um, sorry, an investigative magazine and um, spread fake versions via social media. And, you know, perhaps not surprisingly, those clones were very positive views of what were actually negative stories oh about corruption and you know turned it them into glowing portrayals of the state government luckily there's rule of law and so they took them to court and they were told to stop doing that wow <laughs> my goodness so let's talk about i mean if you had the solutions that'd be amazing i don't think anyone has all the solutions but what are some things you know through your lens that you think first you know companies should be doing should they play a role some people say they shouldn't and what about you know, democratic governments, what should they be doing to combat, you know, the, the myriad of issues around this? Sure. So, I mean, first of all, I think that regulation needs to be, you know, very carefully crafted. And we never want to criminalize or include, you know, such high fines that it could lead to bankrupting media. You know, that doesn't help with um, media freedom. I think what we're seeing some of the responses now are, um, for example, fact checking programs with Facebook and Google, where they've mm -hmm. partnered with fact checking sites and organizations, which are kind of all the rage now, and working with them to identify and label, you know, so-called fake news um, as or, or hoaxes and not removing that content but putting a label on it. So obviously it's better if the content stays up and the you know person can be informed. But, you know, this also raises questions about what is the impact on smaller media, on foreign language media, on, you know, there are not fact checking um, sites in every country. Right. So, you know, that's an imperfect solution. Um, and we there are already reports of I think in Sweden, there was a report of a fact checking site fact checking a journalistic organization, which turned out to be a fake fact-checking site. Oh, no. So even that I mean, is an imperfect sure. solution. <laughs> um, another thing that companies have done, specifically Facebook and Google, is start like new journalism programs and programs to um, help get out journalistic content and support the news media. And, um, you know, they have 
offered to train journalists and news organizations how to better use those platforms. And so, you know, that's great on the one hand. Um, on the other hand, that may have the unintended consequences of entrenching these internet giants as the core gatekeepers in the dissemination of news. Um, and then meanwhile, you know, one of the reasons that news organizations are struggling so much financially and with sustainability is because their economic models have been devastated by, you know, the, the new environment sure. in which news is produced. So, you know, one question I have for these, um, for the for Facebook and for Google and for other organizations that are, you know, aiming to help journalists. But on the other hand, what percentage of their revenue are they giving back to these news organizations? I mean, it's great to help them use them more effectively, but meanwhile, they're getting all the benefits of the ads. And apparently there is some revenue sharing, but I have not been able to get mm. a clear answer on what that is, um, how that looks for news organizations. And, you know, I think that's something that, you know, we really need to investigate. Um, but, you know, also governments, uh, there, are, there are some countries, for example, um, in Southeast Asia, where governments have proposed to set up their own fact-checking um, organizations, which I think, as our discussion has right. emphasized, <laughs> raises all sorts of questions and, and challenges about how that would be implemented. Yeah, we don't need alternative facts out there. Um, we need actual facts. Um, Courtney, that was really, really helpful. Um, one last thing. I mean, obviously, you work with journalists a lot. I know you do different trainings and all that sort of stuff. Would you have any advice that you would give to someone who wants to be a journalist or a young journalist in this kind of new media environment and one that is, you know, complicated and in many places very risky? Yeah, absolutely. So CPJ actually doesn't do training, but we do provide resources for okay. journalists, such as the Journalist Security Guide. We have Emergency Assistance Program. And of course, before any journalist wants to um, report in a given country or in a given location, they should know the facts on the ground and what's happening. What is the situation there? What is you know the threat environment like? What is the risk assessment of what they need to do? But pulling back a little bit in general, you know, advice to people getting into journalism is you know, obviously most journalism, even when we refer to print, has an online dimension to it. And the way that journalists work now implicitly includes electronic devices and, and you know, new yeah. ICTs. And so you have to really understand what the implications are for the protection of your sources, for the digital trail that you're leaving, um, you know, whether or not you're going to be open for surveillance or whether your, you know, communication might be subpoenaed or subject to, you know, data localization requirements. So it's interesting, for example, um, in the United States right now, hearing from journalists who work on beats that are outside of national security, where I think a lot of national security reporters are aware of the need to use encryption, the need to use secure communications. Um, but hearing from journalists who cover, you know, the EPA or um, the education department or just more generally, you know, issues, um, Black Lives Matter, for example, that they also need to take care to you know, protect their sources, to protect their information online and make sure that they're, you know, working in a way that allows them to do journalism that ha can have a good public impact, but can also adhere to one of the core principles, which is protecting your sources. That's great advice. Great advice. Uh, thank you so much for joining, Courtney. Courtney Raj with the Committee to Protect Journalists. You are doing great work. Keep it up and come back on Tech Talk someday. Thank you so much. 
That's it for this episode of Tech Talk. Be sure to check out the great work and all those resources from the Committee to Protect Journalists at cpj.org. And if you're interested in issues about free expression, visit cdt.org to see all the great work we're doing there. I'm Brian Wazolowski. Thanks so much for listening.